Our scripture reading for today comes from Acts chapter 20, verses 31 through 36. Hear the word of the Lord. Therefore, be alert, remembering that for three years I did not cease night or day to admonish everyone with tears. And now I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and to give you the inheritance among all those who are sanctified. I coveted no one's silver or gold or apparel. You yourselves know that these hands ministered to my necessities and to those who were with me. In all things, I have shown you that by working hard in this way, you must help the weak and remember the words of the Lord Jesus, how he himself said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. And when he had said these things, he knelt down and prayed with them. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Good morning. My name is Gabe Coyle, and I'm the campus pastor here at Christ Communities Downtown Campus. And I'm sure at one point or another, you've heard the phrase, it is more blessed to give than receive, right? We've all heard this. I don't know how many times I've heard it, but I don't know about you. No matter how many times I hear it, I can't help but hear it with a skeptical heart. (laughs) You know, but I do think there are those who genuinely believe it's more blessed to give than receive. And I think they live into this axiom without even thinking. For example, there are those who believe, and so show they believe by living this out, that it is more blessed to give thoughtful, focused, and intentional criticism. (laughs) But then whenever you try to return the favor, they say in no uncertain terms that they're quite content. Thank you very much. The same could be said of timely and yet unwanted advice. And maybe, maybe, just maybe, it's decorated with the tinsel of a furrowed brow, and it comes with the occasional judgmental look, right? But in all seriousness, when it comes to the things we actually want to keep, the things we actually want for ourselves, our money and our time, as soon as we start to say it's more blessed to give than receive, it sounds like Jesus' words just took on a very salesy tactic, right? You can't tell a kid around Christmas... And kids, if you haven't heard this yet, you will hear it. And I'm sure we've all been on the receiving end of this. It's more blessed to give than receive. And as soon as you say it, children will look at you like you've just killed Santa. (laughs) It's like, what are you talking about, right? Because here's the deal. This phrase has been so often stenciled like over the hearth in your homes, but kept really far from the reality of our hearts. We have a hard time believing this. But I want you to check this out. A guy by the name of Christian Smith, he's a sociologist, or professor of sociology at Notre Dame. He went about to explore this claim. It's more blessed to give than receive. Because this isn't actually unique to Christianity. It's actually found in other religions as well. And he went about to explore whether this claim is actually true. And he published his findings through Oxford University Press. Why do I say that? Because Oxford University Press brings a weight to his sociological practices that he went about the best avenues possible to prove this claim. And listen to the first paragraph in his book. Generosity is paradoxical. Those who give receive back in turn. By spending ourselves for others' well-being, we enhance our own standing. And letting go of some of what we own, we better secure our own lives. By giving ourselves away, we ourselves move toward flourishing. This is not only a philosophical or religious teaching. 
It is a sociological fact. A sociological fact. And then he goes on to show in his research that those who practice regularly the art of generosity experience more happiness, bodily health, purpose in living, the avoidance of depression, and interest in personal growth. In other words, the best life is a generous life, period. You know, I don't know how many times we've heard this from Jesus, but it seems like just because Jesus put his stamp of approval, we've wrestled through it. But now, maybe, just maybe, since science is affirming what Jesus has been saying all along, maybe we'll believe him. And the reason I say maybe is because cold, hard facts aren't the biggest obstacle to our generosity, are they? And in all reality, cold, hard facts aren't most of the time the biggest obstacle to us following Jesus in the first place. Look, nobody likes talking about money. Then you couch that sucker in the church, it gets real uncomfortable real quick. And I know this, okay? I I dream about winning the lottery just as much as the next person, what I would do, what I wouldn't do. But what I want more What I want more than money are the things that Christian Smith promises that money can't buy. You know, the title of Christian Smith's book is The Generosity Paradox. Because so often we think that we need money in order to purchase those desirables. When in reality, the true pathway to happiness, greater purpose in life, the desire for personal growth, all of those things only comes by giving ourselves away. So what if Jesus was right? What a thought. Like science verifiably right. If we have any desire to be better off in our lives, then we better pay attention. Well, today is the last of six weeks in a series that we've called Neighborly Love. And we've talked about How our work, whether it's paid or unpaid, whether you're a student or a boss, whether you're a parent or you're a child, is an avenue of contribution that God cares about and is a way for us to care about our neighbor. But we even took one step back because oftentimes when we think about loving our neighbor, we think of one-on-one interactions, very much an individualistic, me-centered And so we thought, what does it look like to have a collective perspective? What does it look like for us to live this out in the community? And so we saw how our contribution all the way back in the garden has also been cultivated for collaboration with those around us in our economic world to pursue the common good of our city. And I love this picture, this this portrait over here of the Kaufman Center and how we've been seeking to have a better vision and understanding and engagement of our city. Well, as we come to a close, we come to one more essential component of a thriving economy, one more crucial aspect to a flourishing life and vocation. And it's this sturdy, unchanging truth that the best life is the generous life. The best life is the generous life. And the best neighborhoods have generous neighbors. In other words, neighborly love is generous love, right at the base. So if you haven't already, would you turn with me in your Bibles to Acts chapter 20? If you want the best life or you even want to be a catalyst to help build a loving neighborhood, you're going to need three pillars that are going to be foundational to generosity, okay? And here they are that we're going to walk through them this morning in Acts 20. Fight covetousness, 
work hard and live generously, okay? Fight covetousness, work hard, and live generously. Okay, so as we come into Acts 20, a couple things we need to know about its context before we dive into the text. What we can't miss is that these are Paul's final words that he is saying face-to-face to the leaders at the church of Ephesus, some 30 years after Jesus' life, death, resurrection, and ascension to the right hand of the Father, The Apostle Paul's been going around, he's been preaching, and he's been planting churches. And he spent a significant amount of time in Ephesus. But his heart is still in Jerusalem. His heart's in Jerusalem. He knows, though, that as his heart is in Jerusalem and he feels compelled to go back to Jerusalem, this means pain, it means affliction, it possibly means death. It actually more than likely means his life will be taken. And so he gathers together these leaders within the church And he looks into their tear-filled eyes, and he says this in Acts chapter 20, verses 23 through 25. Imprisonment and afflictions await me, but I don't count my life of any value nor as precious to myself if only I may finish my course and the ministry that I received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. And now behold... I know that none of you among whom I have gone about proclaiming the kingdom will see my face again. A couple weeks ago, we found out that Ali's grandpa, Paca, as he's affectionately called, was diagnosed with leukemia and has somewhere between two weeks to seven months to live. He was a pastor for some 60 years, a widower of a wife of some 60 years. So we threw the kids in the car, we went to Iowa, and we just sat, we listened, and we learned. I remember that last dinner we had with him. It could be our last dinner with him. The stories he told, the advice he gave, his wave goodbye. You don't forget potentially someone's last words. And of all the words that Paul could have used here when he's speaking to the Ephesian elders, At the end of chapter 20, of all the things he could say, he says, I want you to remember what Jesus said. It's more blessed to give than receive. So when we come to this passage, we're coming to understand generosity. Paul's final words to these Ephesian elders. And the first pillar of the foundation of generosity is to fight covetousness. And we see this here in verse 33 in Paul's own example where he says, I coveted no one's silver or gold or apparel. I coveted no one's silver or gold or apparel. Now, the whole word covetousness, it sounds like it's something straight out of Shakespeare, doesn't it? It's not one that you, hey, you're quite covetous. You know, we don't, we don't say that in everyday language. And yet... And yet, I think it's one of the most robust and helpful terms to explain the experience and the battle that's being waged behind the veil of our hearts every day. It's actually one of those pretty big deals such that it made God's top 10 list, you know, the 10 commandments, and uh, it's number 10. And many theologians will say, thou shalt not covet is actually the climax of the 10 commandments. And it's the one command that undergirds the other nine, this inordinate desire. So what on earth does it mean to covet, all right? Well, to covet or to be filled with covetousness is to be consumed, 
to be consumed with a desire for something that you don't have. And often this happens when we begin to assess whether we have enough by looking at other people's stuff, right? We begin to assess whether we have enough by looking at other people's stuff. And the reason this can become so dangerous is that as soon as we begin to feed that desire, as we begin to become consumed by that desire, then you won't stop at almost anything to see it fulfilled. Look, desire is fine and good. There are certain worldviews in which desire in and of itself is evil. That is not what Christianity purports, okay? Desire is a good thing, but it goes awry when we're willing to sacrifice anything and anyone at times to fulfill that desire. And I'll be clear here, I struggle with this just as much as the next guy, okay? No matter how many times I sing, all I have is Christ, <laughs> right? I still want more. I still wrestle with more. If I hear someone else preach, I think, man, that was great. Why can't I do that, you know? Or I see someone who solves a problem that I've been wrestling through. I see how someone remodeled their home. Or I see that they get certain acclamation or praise. And slowly, the ugly head of covetousness rears its head behind my closed doors of my heart. And the reason we have to fight covetousness daily Specifically, if we're going to be people of generosity, is because they're opposites. Generosity is fire. Covetousness is water. And if you want to be burning with generosity, covetousness will flood every spark that you have in your life. The moment that you're willing to become open-handed, you be instead become closed fist, afraid of losing what you do have and actually pressing forward for more that you don't. They're opposites. They compete for the very throne of your heart. So I'm going to ask a pretty difficult question. I don't think it's going to make any of us comfortable when you really start to wrestle through it. It's this. What, what does money mean to you? What does money mean to you? Now, there's a pretty good chance that it's different than what money means to the person sitting next to you. There's a pretty good chance that it's different than the person you married. It's, there's a pretty good chance it's different even from some of your best friends. We all wrestle through covetousness. It just looks different for different people. Because really behind our hunger for green paper or plastic, you know, whatever device or method you use, is the hunger for what that plastic and that green paper can purchase us. So for example, and I, I want you to know, I got Allie's permission to share this. You know, instantly people's eyes spark. I'm just going to start saying that in sermons randomly. <clears throat> but here's the deal. Budgets are not hot topics in our home, okay? It, it usually sparks raised voices much more than it ever does sweet praises in our home. That's not like anybody else in here, right? Um, yeah, not at all, Charles. Um, regardless, this is how this usually goes down in our home. For Allie, things... Uh, we, we need to spend more money on the extra fun things. Whereas for me, I think we need to be continuing to bolster our savings. I, I wrestle with the question, what if? What if this happens? What if that happens? And to be clear, okay, Allie believes in savings, and I believe in having fun sometimes, all right? <laughs> the real rub comes in, how much do we put where, right? Because... Basically, money is a means to slightly different things for Allie and I. And our covetousness, it takes shape for different reasons. 
in our life. So for example, for Allie, she sees money as a way to get comfort and happiness. And these are really good things. Comfort isn't bad. Happiness is good. It's actually promised at times in scripture. But it can easily turn into worshiping the idol of pleasure such that your margin begins to shrink for generosity. Now, for me, growing up in a single-parent home, money is an avenue for security, for security. You know, if you listen to financial gurus like Dave Ramsey, savings is good. You see how I totally stack the chips in my... I just mentioned a financial guru in my point of view. Um, <clears throat> but, but subtly, even though savings can be a good thing, subtly I can begin hoarding. I can begin hoarding and trying to create a false sense of security, which misses the mark on God's good design and leaning into dependence upon him. And the idol behind all of that is control. Especially if you grew up in a more chaotic environment, we seek to have all of our boxes checked, our I's dotted, our T's crossed, because there's a sense of comfort and order and control. Once again, those aren't bad things, but when it becomes all about control, we need to be wary because even when you have all of this control and you have a more robust savings account, it can hamper your generosity, which feels even more absurd because now you have the margin, but you don't have the desire, yeah? We've all got our idols. They're hidden behind our debits and our credits, and for others, it might be respect or status. Buying a new pair of designer jeans, you know, um, with the special s swirls that are right there on those pockets on the behind, right? It could be <laughs> getting a perfectly good car to replace another perfectly good car. It could be expanding your square footage in your loft in your home. And look, none of these things are bad. Let's be clear. But if you're purchasing them to gain acceptance, to gain approval, to finally get attention, and we're feeding an idol. It's not even just about spending in general, but it's why you're spending what you're spending. You know, in Jeremiah chapter 7, we, or 17, we read that the heart is deceitful above all things, and it's desperately sick. Who can understand it, Jeremiah says. Do you want to know what are the hidden idols of your heart? Then go to your budget. Go to your bank statement. Go to your credit card statement. You know, economists will frequently call this revealed preference because talk is cheap. <laughs> Speaking of money, talk is cheap, but what you spend your money on will always reveal what you value. Always reveal what you value. It can show you what money means to you. Do you want to know the alternative? Well, Paul details this out when he's writing his young protege. In chapter 6 of 1 Timothy, beginning in verse 6, he says, Now, there's great gain in godliness with contentment, for we brought nothing into the world, and we cannot take anything out of the world, but if we have food and clothing with these, we will be content. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires. There's our desires language again that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money, the love, not money itself, but the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils that sprout up in all different ways. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. Fight for what's better. 
It's better to give than to get. Fight covetousness. And it's a murky little fella, okay? So it takes a lot of hard work. Sometimes it takes others in our lives who tap us on the shoulder or we invite them into our finances even for accountability. So that's the first pillar. And if we don't get that one right, the second one can become a catalyst to greater greed or generosity. This first pillar is crucial. The second pillar of generosity that Paul lifts up here is to work hard to work hard. Now, and if you've been around for the past six weeks at all, this isn't anything new. But let's see how Paul unpacks this here in Acts chapter 20. Once again, beginning in verse 33. I coveted no one's silver or gold or apparel. You yourselves know that these hands ministered to my necessities and to those who were with me. In all things, I have shown you that by working hard in this way, we must help the weak And that word weak there in the Greek has an emphasis on the economically impoverished. That's what's going on here. The weak, the poor. And remember the words of the Lord Jesus, how he himself said it is more blessed to give than receive. You see, at the initial design of humanity, we were created for work. And when God placed us in the garden, he called us to contribution. And so Paul brings us back to this garden once again right here in Acts 20. And he uses an interesting, another interesting Greek word here, kapiao, which isn't work generally, but it's hard work specifically, hard work. This is the blood, sweat, and tears, the weariness and toil of work. Because I know some of you throughout this series have said, Gabe, I get what you're saying, and that's all well and good, but you don't understand my job. It's painful, it's hard, I'm frustrated, and it feels worthless. But what Paul is trying to say here is that each and every one of us should expect toil in our work. We still live in a cursed world with thorns and thistles, with blood, sweat, and tears because of sin until Christ returns. I recently heard a stat this week, which was very encouraging, (laughs) that those who say they like their job What they're really saying is they like somewhere around 60% of their job. Even those who say they like their job, they're still about 40% of their daily and weekly activities to which they are frustrated and wrestle through. That's encouraging, isn't it? Look, no one here is trying to be utopian about God's call to thoughtful and hard work in our sphere of influence. Work is hard, which is why we're called to work hard. And so I want to ask us another reflective question this morning. Are you diligent in the toil? Are you diligent in the toil? You know what I mean. When obstacles come or roadblocks surface or that desire to do your job fades into what becomes discipline to do your job, are you still willing to work hard or are you hardly working? (laughs) When that moment when desire fades and discipline needs to kick up into overdrive. You know, Paul was so adamant about this. When he's writing a church in Thessalonica, he speaks to them because there was a whole group of folks who said, you know what, I'm tired of working. I'm just going to wait until Christ comes back and I'm going to sit and I'm going to hang out. And listen to what he writes in 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, 
verses 10 through 12. For even, for even when we were with you, we would give you this command. If anyone is not willing to work, let him not eat. For we hear that some among you work, walk in idleness, not busy at work, but busy bodies. Now such persons we command and encourage in the Lord Jesus Christ to do their work quietly and to earn their own living. <clears throat> We're called to hard work. We can't just now sit and wait for Christ to return, but where God has placed us, he's called us to work and to hard work and to now earn a living. And I know that there are obstacles, and I don't want to say that. And for some of you, that can sound very guilt-ridden or burdensome because you're seeking work. And the, the burdens and the obstacles are keeping you from that. Continue to press on. But for those of you who do have a vocation and are there, this is a part of what we're called to as followers of Christ. It's hard work. He's given you assignment. And there are times where your boss is going to give you an assignment that really frustrates you and you wonder why he gives, he gives you all the difficult assignments and maybe not the other employees. It seems like he's got something out for me. How does our generosity not only play into our money, but even what we're willing to do and how hard we're willing to work in the sphere of influence where God has placed us? You see, it's being diligent when we don't have the desire to work where character is formed. We can't control our circumstances many times, but we can control how we respond to our circumstances. That's on us. No one has power over that other than you. And the best life is a generous life. I mean, who knows what God is equipping you to in these difficult scenarios to now go and be able to care for the weak. Who knows how he's shaping you and empowering you to build capacity in your time and talents you didn't know you had, or resources. And to see an example of how this is lived out, we want to show you how one congregant is seeking to do exactly that. So let's watch together. A year before I retired from the FBI, I made a conscious decision to, uh, upon retirement, to do mentoring. and. During my last few years in New York, that's what I did, mentoring with 100 black men of New York. I saw the need here coming to Kansas City. You know, we can all attest to the challenges that the Kansas City Public School has in providing that leadership to the, to the younger generation. My name is Jerry Rose. I've been a member of Christ Community for a little over a year now. We started a nonprofit organization called Look Up. And what Look Up is all about is mentoring students within the Kansas City Public School District, especially uh, four signature schools. We're starting with seventh graders. Our plan is to mentor these young people from seventh grade on throughout their academic life in high school and to follow them throughout their college or professional careers, establishing a network people that will eventually contribute and become leaders here in Kansas City. I went to New York as a senior executive in the FBI and my goal at the time that I arrived in New York in 2006 was to work a few years in New York and um, retire and get that big corporate security job. So I laid out my 
plan for myself to God and for his support and, and blessing. And uh, simply God said, no, I want you to go back and uh, you've talked about it to me all your life, Jerry, that you wanted to mentor and make a change. Well, I'm giving you this opportunity and I want you to go do my will. And here I am in Kansas City. My faith has been one of a struggle and constant questioning, questioning God's role, God's will for me. I'm at peace now with that. And I have that confidence, God-given confidence, to go out and, and do His will. I believe that. There's a culture out there, it's a negative culture, and uh, I want to change that. So that's what I'm devoting my life to. Hard work looks different for different people just as much as covetousness looks different for different people. But he's calling us to hard work, to work hard. And this leads us to the final pillar for the foundation of generosity, and that's to, well, live generously. <laughs> First, we need to pay attention to our hearts and fight covetousness so that we're willing to give. Then we need to work hard so that we have the capacity to give. Sometimes people can overgive and cause themselves to be in debt or to now be able to pay their bills because they've been overgivers. We need to work hard so that we can build capacity for generosity. But thirdly, this is maybe the hardest part of all, we actually have to give. <laughs> and when we come to understand what Paul is talking about here, then we can really sit in verse 35. In all things, I've shown you that by working hard in this way, we must help the weak. And remember the words of the Lord Jesus, how he himself said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. For Paul, living generously is what it means to be the church. Living generously is what it means to actually submit to Jesus as Lord over every aspect of our lives. Helping the weak together. That's what the church is called to. And look, if there's one thing that we've hit over and over again, it's the complexity of compassion because good intentions aren't enough. Something I've noticed with my, my little daughter and who's just at 22 months and my three-month-old son is my daughter loves to give him kisses. She loves to hold his hand and give him hugs. But in her attempt to give him a kiss or give him a hug, sometimes she lays right on top of him. <laughs> like, no, no, no. I mean, I know you're trying to love him, but you're, you're hurting him. And that's what we can do even in our generosity at times. When we seek to help, we can hurt if we don't go about it in thoughtful ways for sustainable and human dignifying avenues. And it can be overwhelming to try to figure that out on our own, right? So how do we do this better together than we could ever do it on our own? This is why we agree with Paul time and time again across the pages of scripture that the church is the primary avenue of generosity. It's, always, it's also why Brian Fickert, who's a nationally known economist, says this, the greatest asset in any community is the church that's already there. That's what Brian Fickert highlights. Because the local church should be the most, we should be the most thoughtful, the most sustainable, the most holistic way to care for the weak within our community. A couple weeks ago, we also mentioned in Harvard 
economist, Raj Chetty, and his article in the Wall Street Journal. And when he was talking about cultivating um, neighborhoods that are economically flourishing, what are one of the three core components to economically flourishing neighborhood? One of those is neighborhood churches. He doesn't proclaim to be a Christian, but he understands the call of the church, and he's calling us out to do what we've been called to do in Scripture and the dynamic impact, impact we can have in this community. And all this is why we believe, and I hope you don't hear this with arrogance. I mean, I know all of us come from different spaces and different history within the church. But the local church, as God designed it, is meant to be the best neighbor in the neighborhood. We're meant to be that. That's who we're called to be. Confronting covetousness wherever we see it, especially in our own hearts, within our own organizational structures. Working hard and then living, living generously together and sharing the uncommon good of the gospel for the common good. I mean, this is why we're passionate about planting churches. We're always talking about planting more campuses. This is why we partner with thoughtful organizations that we've sought to do due diligence and researching that they're doing the most gospel-centered, most robust, poverty-relieving, development-focused work in our city. And there's a portion out of our general fund giving that goes to those partners with no strings attached. What are the most important things you need to do as under-resourced and overextended, doing really good work and best positioned in our city? How can we help do that? And that's how we see as the church to research and now leverage your thoughtful giving towards many partners in our city. It's also why we live generously and we hope to equip us as a congregation to do that better together than we could ever try to do on our own. And so one of the best ways, if you struggle with generosity... Ironically enough, and this is what Christian Smith highlights, the best way to grow in generosity is actually to be generous. It's to try it out. I know it sounds like catch-22, but here, are you learning generosity? Are you learning generosity? If the best life is the generous life, both according to Scripture, specifically according to Jesus, and according to sociology, how are you learning to live the best life by learning generosity now? How are you learning to live the best life by being generous now? And of course, that comes in various forms of our time and our talents, but it also includes most definitely our money, the thing we hold maybe most dear in our culture. After wrestling through this as a church, I want you to know at least where we stand on this. I get this question a lot. As we've wrestled through scripture, we think the best understanding of what God is calling us to as God's people is to give 10% of our income to the household of faith, what Paul calls the church. Then when you encounter other needs, that's when you pray about above and beyond giving. And that's not a small task, is it? 10%, if, I mean, they've done many studies that if the church across the United States were to give actually 10% of their income, no church in the United States would be struggling with budgets or generosity or to fuel various outreach avenues. And God's been doing amazing things through his church. We've got to see them over the weeks and the months that we've been going through this series. But all of this takes money, right? It takes money for the pastries, the lights. It takes money to plant more churches. And it's going to take all of us. I love the way C.S. Lewis, he's a thoughtful theologian from the 20th century, describes generosity. He basically says that if your generosity doesn't hurt, Call it something else, but don't call it generosity. <laughs> because generosity should hamper us. 
It should cause us to sacrifice something to now live below our means and to give to others. What does that look like for you? What does it look like for me? To not live within our income bracket, but potentially live below. What kind of story does that tell to our children within the church? What kind of rapport does that build in our wider community as a church? How does that bolster the plausibility of the gospel in our relationships? Hey, why do you, I know you can afford more. Why are you living like this? Oh, because of the gospel. <laughs> Instantly, you have an inroad to tell how Jesus doesn't just change your devotional life, but the very framework and how you see your life. All of these become so much more impactful if we let Jesus also touch our wallets. Now, I know when I or really anyone talks about money, there are two kinds of responses, two kinds of folks. And the first, I want to say that there are those who embrace this. You're given a tithe. You're generous. You're teaching me that the best life is the generous life. And you go above and beyond. You're living below your means. And I want to say a huge thank you, okay? I want to say a huge thank you. We have a very generous congregation downtown and across our other four campuses. We wouldn't be here without you. And your fingerprints are all over the mission of what God is doing downtown. So thank you. I also know the other extreme are those that say, great, church. The Sunday I come, they're always wanting money, money, money. And here we go. They're asking for money. Well, look, I know you may not trust me, and I don't blame you, <laughs> but trust Scripture. And if you don't trust Scripture, then trust the affirmation that we see in science. The best life is the generous life. But lastly, I do think that there are those who are smack dab in the middle. And as soon as you hear 10%, it feels very ominous and overwhelming. So I want you to try something. Don't just make a sacrifice. Make a sacrificial habit. And I call this the milk rule, okay? Start with 2%. <laughs> Start with 2% and do it regularly. Strengthen your bones of generosity. And then over time, as your income increases or you're able to decrease your lifestyle, then increase your percentage of generosity. This is a really practical way to live within the reality of now and move on to greater generosity in your life. If you can't do that, then it has little to do with the percentage and everything to do with what's going on in your heart. The best life is the generous life. And sometimes the only way to know for sure is to actually try it, okay? And isn't that what God did for us in Christ? When he took on flesh and the person of Jesus Christ, he lived the life we couldn't live and died the death we couldn't die to never pay the debt we so... It's so robust and so intense. Thank God that God didn't tithe his blood. <laughs> but he gave freely and generously that we might know him and be invited into his family. And with that, now we have everything our hearts truly long for in Christ. All those things we're seeking to pursue. This is why Paul says, no matter his circumstance, he's learned the art of contentment, right? Even when he says he can demand money from the churches he's ministering to, he won't in some circumstances for the furtherance of the gospel because he's found that all I have is Christ. And that's where he finds his security, his acceptance, his approval, his respect, his affirmation. The best life is the generous life. If you don't believe me, you can spend your whole life 
spending and trying to buy happiness. But you're going to find at the end of the road, as we've learned from the most wealthy who finally reach the crest, that you'll end up empty. Or you can spend your life generously and just maybe find happiness on the far side. The best life is the generous life. Who are you going to trust with your happiness? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for this morning. I know this is a touchy topic, and I know for some it seems very stereotypical. But I pray, God, that you, you would free us from greed and covetousness. I know it's clear from Scripture our call to be generous people and the importance even of the body of Christ, your hands and feet to be a source of great generosity and even a place to give much of that generosity to carry out your mission for the proclamation of the gospel. But may that be true for us. May that be true for me as I continue to assess my own budget in life, for my family, for our future. May I trust Jesus that it is better to give than receive. I believe. Help me in my unbelief. In Jesus' name, amen.